All right, we are in the book of 1 Kings tonight, so if you take a copy of the Bible and open to 1 Kings 19, as you do so, let me pray. Father, what a privilege it is to once again gather together as your church, together around your word. We pray that by it you would instruct us, you would teach us, you would rebuke us, you would encourage us, that we would all be equipped to do your work in this world. So we ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, evening series that we've been going through, looking at the book of, or I'm sorry, the, the life of Elijah, we've been in the book of First Kings. Tonight we are looking at First Kings 19, verses 1 through 8. Just to set the, the context a bit for Elijah's ministry, it's been a couple weeks since we've uh, been here. So if you look back briefly at the end of chapter 16, you'll notice verse 29, we see this section about Ahab. Ahab here is the context for Elijah's ministry. Verse 29, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign in Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the context for Elijah's ministry. We see here that Ahab, at the behest of his wife Jezebel, institutionalizes Baal worship in Israel. And God has raised up the prophet of Elijah to confront this evil. And as we've worked through chapters 17 and 18, what we've seen from Elijah is a man who has been faithful to obey the word of the Lord. In fact, all of Elijah's movement so far has been at the instigation of the word of the Lord. So if you look in chapter 17, verse 2, it says, the word of the Lord came to him, and then Elijah departs, and he goes, and he lives near the brook Cherith. And then down in chapter 17, verse 8, again, the word of the Lord sends him to Zarephath, to the widow's house, where he spends a couple of years. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, again, the word of the Lord sends Elijah to confront Ahab. Elijah has been faithful to obey God's word. We've also seen a prophet who has been obedient and patient to stay wherever God has called him. If you recall, he was with the widow in Zarephath for probably about two years before confronting Ahab, and this during a drought. He has been obedient and patient to stay where God has called him. He's also been courageous as he's confronted Ahab, the king of Israel, telling him that he's the true troubler of Israel, not Elijah. You remember when Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel? Elijah responds with courage. It's not me, it's you who's the true troubler of Israel. He's also fiery as he calls the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and the prophets of Asherah, 400, to a showdown up on Mount Carmel there in chapter 18. We see he's fiery. He's also confident as he calls on God to accept his sacrifice and not 
the sacrifice of these false prophets. And we see that Elijah is full of zeal as he administers the sword of God's justice at the end of chapter 18, where he puts these 850 prophets to death. And then we also see that he is strong and he is spirit-filled as he runs before Ahab's chariot all the way to the city of Jezreel. And so that brings us to our text tonight in 1 Kings 19. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. What I want to do tonight is walk through this text. There's a lot to see here. And in closing, I want to reflect on some summaries and some applications with three sets of two. That'll make more sense once we get there. Uh, but to walk through this text, back up in chapter 18, verse 46, what we see there is that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's an important question to ask, one I hadn't really considered before. But the question is, why would Elijah run to this city? He, he just did battle up on the mountain. He, he proved that Yahweh is the true God. Why does he go to this city of Jezreel? One of the things we learn later in this book, 1 Kings 21 verse 1, is that Ahab had a palace in this city. And what we see in our text tonight is that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, is there also. So why does Elijah go to this city? Well, we don't know for sure, but it could have been that he's going there to seek out more of these prophets. Remember, Jezebel was the one who was encouraging these prophets. They ate at her table, we learn in chapter 18. So perhaps Elijah's going there to find more prophets, to, to put them to the sword as well. Perhaps he's going to seek repentance from Ahab and Ahab's family and the rest of his court. That's very likely as well. Perhaps part of it, Elijah now sees that he's a new servant for Ahab. So in the same way that servants would go before a king as they would come into their city, so Elijah is ushering in King Ahab as his new servant. 
We don't know. It's probably a combination of all of these. At the very least, what we can say is that Elijah is optimistic as he arrives in this city. So what happens? What happens when he gets there? Verse 1, chapter 19, we read, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Phil Riken, a commentator, points out here that Ahab should have been telling Jezebel everything that God had done, not everything that Elijah had done. Instead of recounting God's power as he consumed Elijah's sacrifice, instead of giving credit to God for bringing rain and ending this long drought that has been in the land, what does Ahab emphasize? He emphasizes how Elijah had killed all the prophets with the sword. And remember, these prophets ate at Jezebel's table. These are her prophets. These are her personal servants. And now Elijah has just killed 850 of them. Later in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, we read this verse. It says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. That word there means to urge on. Jezebel urged Ahab on and all the evil he had done. But here, it seems a a little bit of of a reversal. Ahab is here inciting his wife, Jezebel, urging her on, not toward repentance, like Elijah was perhaps seeking, but rather toward fury. And so she gets the news of these prophets and how they've been killed, and she's furious. And part of her fury, I think, is not just religious, that her religious project in Israel has come under attack, but also her family heritage. She's the daughter, if you remember, of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Sidon was this city in northwestern Syria, and it was the domain of this ancient god, Baal. That's where she was from, and you'll see her father's name, the king there, was named after this god. And so, in a way, Elijah has just humiliated and dishonored her family's heritage. So she's furious, and what does she do? Verse 2, we read that she sends a messenger to Elijah, and here's the message she sends. So may the gods do to me And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Elijah gets this message. Now, from what we've seen in Elijah's ministry, we might expect Elijah to react with boldness and courage and zeal, like he did up on the mountain with the prophets of Baal. Or perhaps he could have responded with mocking, the way he mocked those prophets of Baal. Or he could have appealed to some sort of populism. If you remember, up on the mountain, as the people who were gathered saw that the God of Israel, Yahweh, answered Elijah's prayer and consumed his sacrifice, they started crying out and shouting. Do you remember what they shouted? They shouted, the Lord, he is God. In Hebrew, that sounds like this, Yahweh is Elohim, the Lord, he is God. This is what Elijah's name is. Elijah's name is El. Elohim is Yah, Yahweh, put together. So in a sense, they're shouting Elijah's name. Elijah here could have appealed to a form of populism. Are you sure, Jezebel? Are you sure you want to take me out? 
All the people are on my side. That's not how he responds. We see in verse 3, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. This word afraid, there's a, a little bit of a dilemma here in the Hebrew text. There's two verbs in ancient Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew, just as an aside, was a language that was not written with vowels. It was a vocal language. And so sometimes you would have words that look the exact same and could be pronounced differently and have different meanings. So here in the text, there's two verbs in Hebrew. One is the verb ra'ah, which means to see. And one is the verb yare, which means to fear. They're the exact same in this form in the text. And so there's a little bit of a dilemma. What, what's the verb here in verse 3? The ESV, it says, he was afraid. If you go back and look at older translations, King James, for example, it says, and he saw. So is Elijah, is Elijah seeing something or is he afraid? I think, we don't know for certain, but I think we can say in some ways it's both, right? We can, we can put those two together. Elijah is seeing that the repentance he had hoped for wasn't going to happen. He knows it's a lost cause in the case of Ahab and Jezebel. And so seeing this, Elijah's sight is shifted from God's power that was displayed up on the mountain. And now what he sees is the stubborn unbelief of Ahab and Jezebel. And this is where the element of fear comes in. We could say that fear is often a result of faulty seeing. You think of Peter in the Gospels when he walks out to Jesus on the water. And as soon as Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he sees the wind, he sees the waves, he begins to sink, and he cries out in fear. I think that's what's happening here to Elijah. As Elijah's listening to Jezebel's messenger, his faulty seeing is now shifting and giving way to fear. And he begins to sink in despair. And so what does he do? Well, we've already seen that Elijah is a man of strength. He runs a lot. And so, so too here, he runs. Elijah runs. Now, the last time we saw Elijah running was up in chapter 18, verse 46. There, it was the hand of the Lord that was upon Elijah. And he runs in the strength of the Lord all the way to Jezreel. And so far, as we've seen in Elijah's ministry, every one of his movements has been initiated by the word of the Lord. But now, it's not the word of the Lord, but rather the fear of Jezebel, or we could say the sight of unbelief that comes upon him. And he runs, the text says, for his life. The word there is nephesh, which means life, or it could also mean soul. Elijah is running for his soul. And he runs 90 miles all the way to the city of Beersheba. Why this city? Well, I think one of the reasons here is it's the furthest south he could flee in the kingdom of Israel. Often in the Old Testament, you may know that Israel is designated by Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So Elijah, being up here in the north, flees as far as he can go all the way to the south to Beersheba. But there's this other curious detail we see here in verse 3. It tells us that when he came to this city, it belongs to Judah. So it's a marker, an indicator. He's still within the land, God's promised land. But then it says he leaves his servant there, and he himself, verse 4, 
went a day's journey, and he goes into the wilderness. So why these details? Why, why is the author telling us all this? Well, I think he's showing us that Elijah's despair is continuing to grow. He starts by running from Jezebel. Now it seems like he's running from his calling as a prophet. He's trying to get outside of the land. He leaves his servant. You stay in the land, but I myself, I'm getting out. And so he goes out a day's journey, it tells us, into the wilderness so that he might die. Verse 4, in the English, it says, he asked that he might die. Literally, if you were to look at these words in the Hebrew, it says, he asked that his soul, same word, nefesh, might be killed. Elijah's been running for his life, and now he's asking that his life would be over. This is Elijah's growing despair. Verse 4, we see he's coming to the end of himself. It's one little word in Hebrew, the word rav. He's saying, it's enough. I've had enough. He's crying mercy. He's tapping out. He knows he's going to die, and he says, if I'm going to die, I'd rather God kill me and not Jezebel. So what leads here to Elijah's growing despair? What takes Elijah from the mountaintop into the palace and now alone in the desert? I think we can see six factors here in the text that leads to Elijah's growing despair. One we could say, we could look at, is his physical fatigue. He's run 17 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Now he's gone 90 miles from Jezreel down to Beersheba. And now an additional one day into the journey. Elijah is simply physically fatigued. And we probably know, even from our own lives, that when we have physical fatigue, it often leaves us mentally and spiritually weak. We also see here Elijah was isolated. He had been on his own for three years, cut off from any meaningful fellowship with God's people. And now we see in his isolation, it takes him further into the grip of despair and leads him out alone into the desert. It's this vicious circle of despair and isolation, one feeding the other. Elijah's isolated. We also see here that Elijah is facing spiritual opposition. Jezebel was Ahab's queen, but really she was a mistress of Satan. The verse I read before, read it again, 1 Kings 21, 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. She was urging him on. She wasn't serving her husband like she was supposed to, but rather she was serving Satan and urging Ahab in all of the evil that he did. Jezebel here is a picture for us of evil as it seeks to lie and deceive God's people from the truth. It's a reminder for us that we ought not to discount the reality of spiritual opposition when we battle things like despair. Elijah here is also emotionally empty. He's emotionally empty. I think we also could probably all testify from our own experience that spiritual highs are often followed by spiritual lows. Our fallen, finite bodies just simply can't handle being up on the mountain with God for too long. At some point, we all have to come down. And it's in those moments when we come down from the mountaintop with God that we sense that sense of letdown, melancholy, or perhaps even depression. And Elijah is likely experiencing this 
and, and feeling emotionally empty. Another thing we see here is that Elijah is broken. He is a broken prophet. And not, not using that word here as a synonym for sin, but rather in the sense that he's spiritually crushed. Remember, Elijah is seeking repentance from both Ahab and Jezebel. But what does he find instead? He finds blind, blindness and a hard heart. He sees Jezebel's stubborn rage against the God of Israel. He's crushed as he realizes the fires of God up on the mountain didn't burn in Ahab or Jezebel's heart. They remained unmoved. And so this stubborn belief leads him to this sense of brokenness. Lastly here, we see Elijah is battling his own pride. He's gone from faith-filled prayer as he prays in chapter 18, asking God to bring rain, to now he's in the desert wilderness alone with the cry of despair. It is enough. He says, I am no better than my father's. Remember, the people were shouting his name up on the mountain, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But here, Elijah realizes he's all alone in a desert. He's ready to die. He's battling his own pride as he realizes he's no better than his father's. He clearly can't even live up to his own name. So Elijah is broken, and he's on this journey of despair. And so what does Elijah do? Verse 5, it says there, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. He's physically exhausted, spiritually, mentally, emotionally exhausted. He's at the end of himself. The verbs here, he lay down and slept, suggest that Elijah's laying face down on the ground as if he's about to die at the, at the point of death. And it's here in verse 5, that suddenly the story shifts. There's one little Hebrew interjection. In English, it's the word behold. It's a clue that something is suddenly shifting in our story. And so immediately, what are we introduced to? A second messenger. Verse 5, and behold, a messenger touched him. This is the same word used back up in verse 2. Jezebel's messenger, you remember, resulted in Elijah fleeing for his life. But now there's a different messenger standing before Elijah. And the text tells us that this messenger touched him. Elijah's fast asleep, but this isn't a dream. This is real. He's touched here by this messenger. What does the messenger say? He says, arise, eat. This messenger has good news for Elijah. He's not wagging his finger in disgust. He's not standing off in some kind of royal display. No, he's drawing near and he's inviting Elijah to eat. And again, verse 6, the same word, behold, another divine interruption. Remember, Elijah has just left his servant behind in Beersheba. It's a, it's a key for us to know that he's all alone in this wilderness and so where does, where does this warm cake in fresh water come from? We're meant to see here miraculous provision. The food here is familiar. God has already provided the exact same thing, same word, this cake for Elijah through the widow of Zarephath. And so here, Elijah is reminded of God's provision once again. His memory is kindled. His understanding is increased. 
Just as the Lord provided water and manna and quail to the Israelites as they journeyed through this same desert, so now God is once again providing food in the desert for his prophet. In verse 7, we see a fuller description of this messenger. Elijah's been touched by this angel, but it's not just any angel. Verse 7 tells us this is the angel of the Lord. And do you see what the angel is doing? He's inviting Elijah to eat at his table. And what does the angel of the Lord say? Notice what he says. He, he reminds Elijah of his journey. In verse 4, remember, Elijah went on a one-day journey. But this journey was in his own strength. And in his own strength, Elijah comes to the end of himself. But here, Elijah is told, your journey's not over. You thought you only had one day left, but I've got you on a greater journey. This angel also reminds Elijah of the same word he uttered before. In the Hebrew text, it's the same word, rav. Before, Elijah said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. And here the angel reminds Elijah, it is enough. This journey is too great for you in your own strength. But my provision will be sufficient for you. And what we see here is that as Elijah comes to the end of himself, when he thinks he's had enough, he finally and suddenly finds that God's grace is truly sufficient. And how does God's grace restore Elijah? Well, he does it through the physical nourishment of water and bread. You hear there the allusions to the bread and the water that we took this morning, right? God strengthens us. He gives us physical nourishment. He strengthens and restores Elijah through sleep. Two times, Elijah is awoken by this angel. He also renews and restores Elijah by giving him a new vision, a new sight. Now, strengthened by God's grace, Elijah, he sees the bigger picture. He realizes his journey is not over. And now he's on a different journey. And notice where this new journey is going to take him. It's to the mountain. He was just up on a mountain, if you remember. Now he's in a desert. He's going back to a mountain. But this is a different mountain. This is Horeb, the mountain of God. His journey here is a sort of reverse exodus the 40 days and 40 nights that Elijah travels to this mountain recalls Israel as they wandered for 40 years in this same desert. And as he travels to this mountain, Mount Horeb, it recalls Moses going up the exact same mountain. And so, as we come to the end of the text, the question looms, is Elijah going to see God? That's the question. And that's what we'll get to next week, so we can't get into that tonight. So, what do we make of this story from Elijah? I want to finish by reflecting on three sets of two. Three sets of two. The story here of Elijah is a story of two messengers. The story of Elijah is a story of two messengers. When James, later in the New Testament, tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, we see not only his example of prayer, but also his deep descent into despair. And just like Elijah, I think we all are prone to despair. And notice for Elijah, his despair started with listening to the wrong voice. The messenger of Jezebel or the messenger of the Lord? Which voice are you listening to? 
First John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, the world is full of Jezebels. Her voice goes out. It seeks to deceive, to kill, to destroy. And so the question for us is to whom am I listening? Am I listening to God's voice? Am I placing my eyes on his ways? Or am I listening to the voices of the evil one? Or perhaps to to say it another way, you may find yourself on a journey of despair, just like Elijah. A question for us in those moments is, what, what, what do I see? What am I listening to? Quite literally, there's voices coming at us all the time. What am I listening to? The voices of Jezebel will ultimately lead us to fear and despair and death. God's voice always leads us to joy and rest. So Elijah is a story of two messengers. We also see in this story of Elijah, it's a story of two journeys. Elijah is a story of two journeys. One journey, Elijah, fueled by his own strength, he eventually comes to the end of himself. He can only make it for a day. This was a journey for him of despair. But God's path is entirely different. God's path is the way of providence. The way of providence is trusting that God, who is most holy, wise, and powerful, is preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We notice here that Elijah was running from Jezebel. He was running from his calling as a prophet. And in some sense, we can say he was running from God himself. But here's what's so amazing about this story for us, this journey of God, that even Elijah's running away, God uses to bring Elijah back to himself. God is preserving his prophet, and he's governing all his ways. And just as he did so for Elijah, so he is doing for each one of us. Trusting God's ways of providence means we have a greater confidence in God, even as we are actively making our decisions for tomorrow. And so lean in to God's providence Lean into God's providence. Ask God to show you what journey does he have you on. It might only look like a day from our vantage point. But ask the Lord, Lord, in your providence, what journey do you have me on? Pray for others in this way. Pray that others, as they are making decisions in life, that God would be leading them in his providence. Pray that they would be trusting in God's providence. As People may be running from God. Lord, preserve him as he's running from you. Lord, meet her as she's wandering alone in the desert. Lord, bring him to the end of himself and send your messenger to speak a better word. The story here of Elijah should strengthen our trust in God's providence, no matter what the circumstances we are in. And lastly, as we reflect on this story from Elijah, The story of Elijah is a story of two trees. It's a story of two trees. We notice here as Elijah comes to the end of himself, what does he do? He throws himself down before a tree. And it's here at the base of this tree that he finds God's grace. And so for us, when we find ourselves racked with the same things Elijah was facing, 
whether it's physical fatigue, isolation, spiritual opposition, emotional emptiness, a broken spirit, pride, whatever it might be, we can do the same thing as Elijah. We throw ourselves down at the tree. And it's at this second tree that we find the true solution to our despair. There's an old German preacher reflecting on this passage, and he said it, he said it well. So let me quote him, just two sentences. This pastor said, In the presence of the cross, you no longer think of complaining about the greatness of your suffering, for here you see a suffering which your own is as nothing. In the presence of the cross, you will quickly be forced to forget your distress, for the love of God in Christ Jesus for you, poor sinner, will soon draw all your thoughts and reflections away from everything else and to it alone. So here at this tree, our fears and anxieties and worries can find their end. Here at the tree, at the cross, Jesus offers us himself. And what does he give us? Just like Elijah found, he gives us rest. He nourishes us through his body and his blood, just like Elijah received nourishment. And just like Elijah, wherever our journey might be headed, God in his providence reroutes it and leads us to the heavenly mountain where we will enjoy the presence of God forever. And so like Elijah, let us throw ourselves down at the tree and find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see your wisdom and power as you sustain and govern all your creatures and all their actions. And so for any of us who might be on a journey of despair, we pray that you would rescue us. Help us to listen carefully to your voice, not the Jezebels of our day. And we ask that you would lead us to the cross of Christ to find rest for our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.